This is the Design Goggles podcast on DNV Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the old Ballard neighborhood and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled Communities in Need. Inspiration is a word that's thrown around a lot. Sometimes it's referencing art or music or literature. Yet other times, maybe someone's food, a chain of computer code, or even a Pinterest account. But once in a while, designers encounter something that's truly, unequivocally inspiring. Sometimes we as designers get a chance to affect change for a community in need. Every time we succeed, we have the opportunity to inspire other designers to do the same for other communities, and so on. But it's only when we consider the less fortunate parts of the world that we understand what it truly means to be a community in need, and perhaps how profoundly architecture and design can make an impact. Which communities need design the most? How can design make an impact for the less fortunate? How can we as designers inspire others to do more for their community and communities around the world? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Fabian Bedoya, an architect at 14 Plus Foundation, a US-based charitable organization dedicated to building schools and orphanages for African children in rural communities. Fabian, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Before we get into this, also today, my co-host Rachel is on a well-deserved vacation. Sitting in for her is Jeff Pelletier, architect and founder of Board and Vellum. Jeff, thank you for sitting in as well. You are super welcome. So Fabian, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in a very, very tiny town called Watsonville in California, the Bay Area, South Bay. It's one of those towns that is in many ways like a little bubble. My parents are both immigrant farm workers and... This was a community that was very much an extension of Mexico. And for the most part, I grew up feeling kind of isolated. I never really thought of myself as being a true American. And a lot of that just has to do with the culture that I was raised with. I look back at that and I I sort of understood a lot of the reasons why there was a desire to sort of like open up to other communities just because mine was so insular and so limited. Uh, in many ways. What was the closest major city to where you grew up? We were somewhere nestled between, or we still are nestled between Santa Cruz and Monterey, but we were about 45 minutes south of San Jose. So did anything about the San Jose culture bleed into your community or did it seem like worlds apart? Uh, I mean, San Jose, for the most part, is also has a heavy Mexican-American community. And I think there is a little bit of a bleed, but we certainly didn't experience it just because we never really traveled. I mean, the closest town we went to was Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. Monterey, just to go to the aquarium. So I know you spent quite a bit of time on the East Coast. You went to school in upstate New York, and you lived in New York City for quite a while. Slightly different, maybe, than the context you grew up in. What was that adjustment like? I think there was a desire to, I think, expose myself to just a diverse environment. The diversity that I was seeking was really one of just exposing myself to different cultures. And it's strange to say that because California is relatively progressive, but I still felt like I was stuck in this little bubble. So for me, it was a clear choice to sort of walk outside of this bubble and expose myself to sort of new uh, new people. And 
I felt like it didn't matter where I went. I think Cornell certainly provided that, but it was really just more about exposing myself to different cultures, languages, people from all over the world. So it was certainly an opportunity for me just to sort of like expose myself to these individuals that I'd never met before. Were there any major surprises, adjustments? Of course. I mean, I think there's <laughs> there's a world of adjustment that takes place. And I think for me, there was a little bit of a, of a desire to sort of just put my history and my background off to the side, like and almost kind of create a blank slate. And not because there was any kind of shame attached to it, just really more like, like, this is what I know. This is true to me. But like, I am eager to like really learn about everything else outside of Watsonville. So yeah, there was a lot of adaptability and a lot of sort of learning how to maneuver conversations, just the context of being at Cornell, the department, the intensity of the program, all of that was certainly very nuanced for me. But I've always felt like I, I always knew how to adapt to different environments. So for some reason, that skill set sort of opened up in many ways. Did you always plan on staying in New York for as long as you did? Or was it was it always planned? Good question. I don't think I had any plans outside of just like I needed to graduate and then practice architecture somewhere. Ultimately, we all sort of gravitated to New York for different reasons, but I think it was really about just the community that I was developing, the group of friends that I was hanging out with and connected with the most. Certainly, we all had the same vision and we all shared the same aspirations. And so it was very easy for us to just sort of create our own little nest and a little family and sort of migrate together, literally. Uh, we all sort of moved into this large loft in Williamsburg that was raw and empty and needed some construction. A group full of architects had no idea how to build partitions, um, <laughs> but for some reason we figured it out when we were at Home Depot. We literally bought one of those how-to manuals from Bob Vila. <laughs> yeah. The irony was laughable at the time, and it still is. Uh, yeah, I mean, the reality is like when you practice architecture, you understand the concepts, the theories, the history, but technicality was something we all kind of slept through. And the reality is that like the experience that you get during your career, the development of your career, you certainly start by getting hands-on experience. And so for us, it was really a unique moment to be able to do that and to actually try the design, but also build it with our own two hands. So did you actually have the building systems class where you had to build like a three-quarter scale mock-up of yeah. a wall? Yeah. So we all went to the same school. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Different exactly. years, but all the same school. <laughs> Disclaimer, we actually all know each other ahead of time. <laughs> but I remember actually that class having to build something. I like slammed my hammer into my yeah. thumb. Yeah. And I realized that I cannot build things. <laughs> so I'm impressed that actually six of you managed to get a lot. So we managed to put up some metal studs and some sheetrock up. Like that's as far as we went. <laughs> that's pretty good. Enough to create some partitions not acoustically separated by any means. We had no doors and our mattresses were on the floor. But it was the thing to do. <laughs> and we loved it. I feel like six architects in a loft in Williamsburg is like the beginning to, of a show like that I want to watch. Actually. It's funny you say that because we've had those conversations in the past and the personalities in that group were bountiful and certainly would have been an opportunity. Did you live near Andre? No, Andre lived uh, in West Williamsburg. So he was like closer okay. to the water. We were sort of like south. Because it sounds so familiar to his, his situation, but he was living with a chef and a boat builder <laughs> and it yeah. worked out exactly like yeah. thing. The architect built partitions badly the boat builder built boats in the apartment and the chef cooked yeah. for both of them <laughs> okay now i'm getting nostalgic for this. <laughs> yeah the stories are certainly mirrored i mean i think a lot of people who graduate from places like cornell easily migrate to the city with the same sort of set of aspirations and we've all sort of done it in one way or another before we get into your experience with 14 plus which i'm super excited to talk about on this show we talk about the evolution that seattle's gone through a lot 
actually all three of us for different periods of time lived in New York City. You've lived there the longest, literally since graduation. I'm curious to hear your perspective on how New York as a city and the communities that it makes up and that you've spent time with have changed and how you feel about them and what it's been like watching it. I like to think that everyone experiences New York a little differently. Even when I share my version of New York to friends or visitors or family members, I feel like we've all carved out a storyline or at least a narrative of how you choose to experience New York City. And I think it's easy to find yourself navigating sort of the multiple layers of the city and the multiple communities, but I think it's largely what you make of it. I've looked at New York on a more holistic level to really understand the intricacies of social issues regarding communities and how they navigate the city. I think the way I navigate the city rather selfishly is really more about how I tap into either cultural environments or social environments or personal or emotional environments within the city to reconstruct a version of the city that makes sense to me. You know, I think a lot of people either struggle or thrive within the city and and a lot of it has to do with how you navigate it. For example, I live in Brooklyn and the reason why I live in Brooklyn is because I need to remove myself from the city. So there's this need to sort of be a part of it. But as much as I enjoy thriving in the chaos, I also love getting away from it. And whether it's living in Brooklyn next to the park or escaping to upstate New York to get a little bit of a respite, it's has largely to do with the desire to be a part of that chaos as much as you want to sort of stay away from it. I felt very much the same. Actually, when I moved to Seattle, I had to unlearn it in a way. First of all, Seattle is a much smaller city center. Like what we considered on the East Coast to be very much the suburbs is literally the center of the landmass of the city of Seattle, which is a weird thing. And I, I wanted that separation and I didn't, I realized I didn't need it. And I was taught that separation by New York. Yeah, yeah. Like staying 24 hours a day in Manhattan is like a sport. You got to be good. When I lived in New York City, my favorite thing to do was actually leave Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just to like go away every single weekend. It's actually why I moved because I felt like I was spending all my time trying to leave. And I was like, wait, why don't I just do that once? (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because I think I've gone back to New York a bunch of times recently and I enjoy it so much more than I did when I lived there. It's funny watching cities evolve. New York was like sparkling clean. And Seattle as a city has gone through a lot of horrible growing pains over the Mm -hmm. last couple of years. And Seattle went from being sparkling clean to being kind of filthy. There's trash on the streets everywhere. And so it was kind of a weird contrast for me to see the change. Yeah, I look back at just the past 16, 17 years, I hate to acknowledge that, of living in the city. And I think for some reason, I also been uniquely aware of just the migration that takes place within sort of young professionals who are going from that rather impoverished start, especially as young architects, to where we are now. Navigating sort of the real estate market, navigating sort of the gentrification that takes place in some of the outer boroughs, for me, is perhaps one of the things that I, for some reason, have struggled with. And I say that only because I feel like I'm running away from it. And as a person of color, navigating sort of the communities of color that are largely being displaced, and then to a certain extent, I realize that I'm a part of that energy that's causing that displacement. It puts me in a weird sort of in-between space. Can I relate? Do I not relate because I'm of color, but not of that community? It's a complex conversation that I think a lot of us are trying to have, or at least have a discussion about, but can't say it's reconciled within sort of the much larger conversation about the real estate market and how developers um, or even just government officials are navigating sort of the rezoning of some of these areas. It's interesting because New York City is such a big city. You have enough land, that kind of discussion can happen over a long period of time and things can't move that fast. And it's been funny seeing it happen in Seattle 
because the growth here has been so exponential so quickly yeah. that people are like, please pause. I, I want to talk about this. How do we solve it? And how do we even talk about it? Yeah. And then it's like, oh, too late. Yeah, that's gone. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what happened to places like Williamsburg, for example, where like the development and the transformation of that environment happened overnight in such a short period of time. But it was a literal erasure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you saw it not just in the demographics, but you saw it in the architecture. And I think people are starting to use that as a reference. There are learning from it. Can't say it's making any transformative changes across the board, but it certainly puts people in a position to say, you know what, we need to really think about this a little bit more. And so what we've seen is other neighborhoods who are sort of at the cusp of that transformation just sort of taking a little bit more time. And I'm not sure if it's a conscious effort from those who are taking the lead in the development or if there is resistance or if it's just that conversations are starting. I'm an advocate of anyone who sort of has the opportunity to invite and create a platform for a discussion, certainly with the nature of the complexities of an existing community versus a community that's trying to sort of adapt or relate or connect with. I can't say I'm a member of a community board to really have those discussions. So when you ask me this question, I think the idea of community is something that I have an abstract understanding about because I feel like I'm constantly treading this fine line between different communities, even just when I look at the makeup of all my friendships. You know, I have like friends from the gym, friends from work, friends from my neighborhood. It's it's interesting that most of us sort of navigate different sort of sectors of communities oh, yeah. within the city. So actually, I'm thinking a lot about the word community and thinking about when I first sort of re-encountered your work with 14 Plus. A couple of years ago, I'd, I'd moved to Seattle. Seattle was one of the most community-focused cities I'd ever been in. People are very involved here, and the city very much recognizes that involvement. In New York City, a community board gets together and the city just goes, we are contractually obligated to tell you what's happening in your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> then they get yelled at and then they leave. Right. That's the community board. Here, I wouldn't say they have capital P power, but they vote and they speak loudly about right. what they want. And there are, there are consequences to a community having needs met. When I think of a community in need, I'd worked previously with Habitat for Humanity and we've done some work here at Border and Bellum for community groups. And you see homes that need serious work. You see communities that have security problems and education problems and a clear disparate amount of public money being given out. Those are definitely communities in need as we think of them. And then when I came across your work again, my definition of what a community in need was completely changed again. And it was one of the reasons I was inspired by your work to join the Seattle chapter of Architects Without Borders and start to think about what that really means for developing countries, a whole different sense of what community is and what really needing design is. And so I would love to hear how you came to be at 14 plus doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to talk about this conversation, or at least the whole idea of community and how one could scale that discussion. Arguably, the work that we're doing across the world in Africa is something that we can do locally. I think as designers, as architects, we have this incredible tool to be able to transform the lives of others. I think the unique set of circumstances that allowed me to do this work with 14 plus was really about just sheer serendipitous like connections between friends of friends and people within the industry. And one would argue that that even just your local industry, your local business partners and network is a community on its own. But the fact that these were all individuals who understood that they had the ability to do something, whether it's financial contributions, design contributions, or any kind of volunteerism, the collective nature of that group was ultimately the reason why I got involved, because they were doing things that were not only transforming the way we think about 
this type of work, but also creating a new model for getting involved in, and actually creating partnerships with these communities. So then that becomes this weird extension of your community that really transcends distance and geography. And so I think that to me was what was most inspiring because there was this incredible desire to really be able to connect with the communities there rather than doing what unfortunately a lot of nonprofits end up doing is that there's this desire to help, which is great, but you are helping on a very short-term basis, right? Like you're helping, you're providing a building or a service, and then you sort of walk away. And for us, it was always about, and it's always been about sustaining and providing a level of responsibility, both the members of the community as well as ourselves get to bear. And I think more often than not, that is largely the reason why the successes of our work continue to grow, because there is this desire to have an intimate connection with the children of the village, the family members, the leadership of the village, and really be able to nurture those relationships. When you first visited the site before your Chippecott Academy project even started, what did you find? How would you describe the community there in terms of what they had day zero? It's hard to talk about this just because when you start thinking about day one, it was clear to me that this was just so fundamentally a primitive way of living. These families don't have any running water. They have no electricity. Medical needs, medical support was just not available. So you're really living off the land. Um, and it was a very humbling, a very sobering moment for me to just be a part of this environment and to sort of walk into it with a level of respect um, and honoring the fact that this is how they live. But that doesn't mean that they don't deserve basic human rights like education or health services. So it was very clear to us that our goal was really simple, and it's really to provide them with basic needs and to show up and to be sort of in their environment and then have this weird look on their faces was kind of a little jarring in the beginning. You could see that they were struggling to just sort of understand why you were there. I hear back some of the stories that we heard after the fact, and some of these people thought we were there to steal their land. They thought we were here to uh, take their children. They had heard of many nightmare stories about other people who have done some really terrible things. So it was clear to me that we needed to create a safe space and we needed to remind them that we were here to help them. But it was not about us and it was really about creating a relationship and a partnership and that that collaborative spirit was really what we wanted to support. So it was really intense when I look back at day one, uh, because there was a lot of apprehension, a lot of fear. But again, it didn't take long before you actually managed to break through and managed to connect. And the purpose of our very first trip was to nurture those relationships, both through a construction exercise, as well as a series of workshops with some of the children. It's incredible. How many times were you able to visit from beginning to end? <laughs> I lost count. <laughs> I don't even know how many times. But after that initial trip, that's when I was invited to go back and spend a little bit more time and by a little, I was 11 months, I went back to actually execute the construction for the rest of the school and live there for almost a year. Since then, I suspect I've been back two to three times a year, but I really have lost count. So instead of going step by step for the process, I'm curious just to compare what was the state of the community when the school opened? Um, uh, that was magical. It was... Uh, I still get really emotional about it. Um, it was powerful because it wasn't, the school is not just a school. The buildings that we built serve the community uh, as a whole. And that is part of the reason why I think the work that we do is evolving over time and that it's providing services and 
spaces and opportunities for men, women, and children of the village. And so it was really nice to sort of see all those families that I met on day one sort of come back and have this incredible festive day. Our ribbon cutting was pretty spectacular. Everyone was just like having a blast. So to me, I look back at that day and really that was the culminating point to a, a rather difficult and arguably perhaps the most challenging experience of my life personally and professionally. After the after effects of the school have been to the community, have more buildings been built around it? Did it serve as a catalyst to more change? So what we were very mindful of is the fact that like we needed to give ourselves a little bit of breathing room and understand both the successes and the failures of what we had just built. And so we gave ourselves, we gave the students and, and the teachers the opportunity to give us feedback and to give us some comments on the successes and the failures, things that worked and things that didn't with not just the design, but just also day-to-day operations. And I think for the most part, it was clear that the successes outweighed the failures and the failures certainly give us enough guidance for us to really improve upon design details or functionalities with both subsequent phases of that particular school as well as the second school that we're currently working on. So there were then and there still are plenty of opportunities for growth and discovery as far as the functionalities and flexibility of the program that we're trying to uh, implement with some of this work. Now, you couldn't just go to Home Depot and get extra (laughs) CMU units when you needed to build another wall. And now that couldn't have been the only challenge to building a, a, a new school in the middle of the the planes. I think that's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly far more complicated than that. The logistics of getting anything done out there are one thing, or certainly the one of the biggest things that I had to deal with, just because you're literally building in the middle of nowhere. But the reality is that we quickly outgrew what we built in phase one and started to work on subsequent buildings to support additional classroom spaces. The beauty of that was that by that time, I had already moved back to New York. And I wasn't ready to move back to Zambia for many reasons, Um, but it was clear that we wanted to take on the opportunity to really allow our team on site to do the work on their own. So I spent the first year doing the subsequent phases of the work by monitoring their work remotely. And believe it or not, it was literally done through my phone on WhatsApp and I would get daily pictures and daily reports from my team attendance sheets at the end of each period, material requests. I implemented the the structure so that they understood how to actually operate and run a, a construction job site. And I think a lot of them were empowered enough to do it. I, you know, I have people who like stepped up, who started from being just regular villagers from the village to now being some of my key masons and key site supervisors. So that growth is really what I like to sort of recognize the most, just because it is really about nurturing a new set of skill sets for some of these men. Now, looking back at it, the past three years of having done this type of work, it's clear to me that they're now learning to pass this information from one person to the next. And so on the second school that we're working on now, we've been able to sort of carry some of those key individuals from the very first school. And now they're starting to train the new group from the, the new village. So were yeah. these Masons members of that community? Initially, they were just villagers. So they initially started as general workers and then they started to learn the trades. And two of them are now part of the Masons. It's a combination between those two and then a handful of others from town. That's awesome. It's funny. One of the things about, I think, housing in particular that's so interesting to me is that housing doesn't create just a space for you to live, but it actually creates time. I think one of the interesting things about sort of housing or building challenges around the world is that the solution they create isn't so much, oh, this is a spot to educate our kids or to live. 
it gives you the freedom to not worry about things or have to move a location that is temporary or whatnot. That you actually you're given the time back to actually focus on learning a trade or doing something beyond and kind of furthering your life. Yeah. I think that's one of the exciting things about what you're doing. So I feel like a lot of what you're doing is giving people the gift of time. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think a lot of what I try to stay present to is that it's not just about building anymore, right? It's really about nurturing the lives of these children, nurturing the lives of these men and even some of the women. We teamed up with a group of women who are now, um, they're called the Tietseko women, and they are responsible for, through a microloan program that we developed, we supported their procurement of seeds and they planted a field of corn and vegetables. And now they are the source of the food that we serve our children for free. Any excess harvest is being sold back in town. And those funds are then recouped or used by, by the women. And so the idea is to sort of support the community in a sustainable way so that they provide to the school and ultimately to their children while still being able to sustain themselves as well. So it really is a more holistic approach to thinking through community service. As you were talking before, when I asked you a question about day one, and you were telling me about the basic needs of this community, very little medical care, running water, et cetera. The first instinct is not, oh, these people need a building. <laughs> it's funny thinking yeah. of what nonprofits, when you're speaking about temporary help, it makes so much sense. And it's so tempting to say, let's go in there and give them exactly, they need some medical care. Let's go and give them some medical yeah. care. On one project that AWB is working on in Mombasa, there's a school and aid groups come in all the time, feed the children and give them blankets and things, and then they're gone. Yeah. And those are the only days those children have food or blankets or help of right. any kind. And when they leave, there's nothing again. Right. There's an image of you on day one just standing in the field with a plan. Yeah. And what now isn't so striking is that, oh, there's going to be a building later. We all expect to see that as architects. But how much impact was created out of just what exists on a small patch of land and all that cooperation and coordination, all the care you took in integrating in country, integrating in the community in a responsible way. Both designers and nonprofits talk about Tom's shoes all the time as a cautionary tale about doing good thoughtlessly. And you, you think you're helping and you're giving these things away, but actually no one now can make shoes in that community because yeah. there's an unending supply of shoes and you've put a huge amount of people out of work. But you and your organization put so much thought into it beyond just building a thing. That must have been a whole second job on top of actually making the building. Absolutely. And I think part of the reason that we enjoy creating an impactful and having a meaningful relationship with our communities because ultimately it's not about a building and it's not about us. It's really about what is possible when you nurture someone's potential. Whether it's a child or a mother or a father from that community, that is the effort, right? And so really it's the maintenance and it's the ongoing relationships that we continue to develop with these communities that really allow them to sustain themselves. So what's next for you? What's next for 14 plus upcoming projects? Excellent right. question. I mean, I think we've been spending the last couple of years focusing on our second school. The school is uh, the Morwindo School designed by Seldorf Architects. And that is consuming a lot of my time now. We are growing and we are getting a lot of positive recognition in ways that we never anticipated. So we have a bunch of architects, both in New York and around the world, who have reached out to us and who are interested in getting involved. And we say, great. I mean, everyone wants to sort of design a school for children in Africa. Mm -hmm. 
I think what we're trying to think through next is understanding how it's one thing to provide your services pro bono. It's another thing to introduce a model that really is about sustaining the school, but also its operation, right? And so the idea of investing on the construction of a project is one thing. What we're now thinking about is really how do you sort of expand that and talk about the sustainability of its operations and its maintenance. Largely part of the reason that we're trying to make sense of all of these successes is really to understand how to continue to grow and think about the bigger picture. So I can't say we have figured it out yet, but we certainly understand that the goal is to introduce more sustainability into the program, or at least the structure of our organization. One of the things I was thinking about before today was the fact that we live in a very strange world right now, where if something happens, we'll change our profile picture on Facebook to like, hey, I stand with X. And we're in a society where we'll support something until the next election, and then it's a whole new game and we'll wipe it away. And so we're faced with things like climate change or something that we can't make the big sort of big picture moves because as a society, we're focused on the short term wins. What you're doing is really long term stuff. And a lot of it even, yes, you can maybe get people rallied around building a school, but then that building a school takes a very long time. Training labor is getting it done, kind of getting it moving. But then the real challenge is how do you sustain and keep that school funded and supplies there and food? And that's less exciting and sort of, you know, fun for people to sort of support. How do you see that kind of work happening? It's a good point. And and we certainly can't say we've figured out the secret formula. One thing that we've learned is that we are a group of a bunch of architects, contractors, designers, stylists, teachers, all sort of doing the best that we can. And I think we understand that there's room for growth and improvement. And what we've been trying to do most recently is to team up with individuals who are bringing new and fresh ideas to the organization. The last thing we want this to be is an organization that's just about the co-founders or me or key individuals. And so it's really about introducing new ideas and new models and largely the idea of supporting a women's owned farming initiative came from someone else. One of the unique things about the second school is that we're making our own bricks. We bought this beautiful machine from Denmark. It's a brick making machine that we're going to hold and leave behind and allow the members from the village to actually support their own business and creating and making their own bricks selling the bricks and then allowing for those bricks to be used for for local construction. So it's really those little things that really are the seed of an idea that come from other people. So for us, it's really about collaborating with uh, individuals who can sort of adapt and sort of align with the vision that we have. And it's ultimately really a simple vision. We design, operate, and maintain schools in Africa. So how do we do it? It's really up to the team that is part of developing that new school. So that when I say architects are interested in, in being involved in designing a school, designing the school is just step one, really. And thinking through the next uh, series of steps is really what we're looking for. So we're almost out of time. I want to ask you one last question. Sometimes I do alumni interviews, so I'm talking to like 17, 18-year-old aspiring architects. And many of them, this is amazing, like when we were applying to school, it was like, oh my gosh, I saw a building by X famous architect that made me want to be an architect. So many of these kids were inspired by tragic events and they want to make a difference with design. And so what advice would you give to this next generation of designers and architects that really want to make a difference through design? What would you tell them? I think when you think about design, oftentimes, especially as a young architect, your ego gets wrapped up in it and you design more often than not for yourself. Designing for others, like truly designing for someone else, 
is a bigger challenge. Learning how to take that on and being able to really surrender and letting go of yourself in that process, I think is arguably one of the biggest challenges for most architects, aspiring or practicing architects, I would say. Finding a way to turn down the ego and taking yourself out of the equation is probably, for me, has been the most transformative part of doing this kind of work because then you really surrender to what it means to be in the space of giving. Well said, man. Thank you so much for sitting with us, Fabian. This is a lot of fun. And thank you so much for joining us. Our next night school event will be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on our social media for that. It will be held here at Fordham Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also check out our blog on boredomvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in a few weeks.